Darkly Splendid Abodes, the official podcast of Toronto Thelema, exploring, if you will, practical philosophy, from science and the workings of the mind to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. Stooping down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. As we cap off our first six months of deep dips, Michael and I look back over our conversations and reflect on the texts we've delved into. Crowley's translation of the Tao Te King, Liber de Lege Libellum, the essay by Jack Parsons entitled Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword, and Lecture 4 from Crowley's Eight Lectures on Yoga. What were our favorite takeaways? And how do we feel we benefited from this project? No, I think uh, we can get started. I think it's it might even be funny if you wanted to, because this is a little bit more casual. If you wanted to just do do like a running start uh, and just just uh, fade us in anywhere there, <laughs> just come saying. in in the mid combo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, I, I guess the goal of today's talk, I, I still feel obligated to say, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. Beautiful. It would be uh, chilling if I just got a long silence after that. And... <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe I'm allowed to tell a story. Oh. Somebody noticed my tattoo one time mm. uh, and uh, asked me what it said. And I said, it says, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. There is no law beyond do it that wealth. And he said, oh, Mr. Crowley. <laughs> and, and I said, you're familiar. And he goes, oh, long ago. And, uh, you know, we chatted for a good long time. And I said, I said, you know, there's still stuff happening locally if you're interested in uh, hanging out sometime. And he goes, oh, no, that was, in, that was all in my 20s. I left that behind long ago. And as he left, I said, 93. Uh, which is a shorthand for the formal greeting. And when I said it, his face dropped and his eyes opened wide and he just stared at me. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I, was, I was managing a coffee shop, so I had prepared his order. And he almost walked backwards out the door without breaking eye contact. <laughs> and then there was a huge picture window in the front of the shop. And the whole way back to his condo, he stared at me through the window and he never came in again. Wow. It was like he was all game to talk about it until I used the greeting. And I don't know what it was. It was like a it was like he had had a Vietnam flashback or something. <laughs> or Recovered maybe, memories, you know, I guess. <laughs> it was very weird. Hey, Not man. the reaction I was expecting. Yeah, you know, it's like uh, I, I personally, obviously, I think both of us feel really strongly about uh, being uh, involved with Thelema and that sort of thing. But there's certainly people and circumstances I can imagine that could produce traumatic events <laughs> um, i think anyone who's been around the community for like you know more than 10 minutes has had at least one traumatic event <laughs> these things this this horrible uh every once in a generation something really terrible will happen 
happening. For those of you <laughs> and, just joining uh, us, uh, you heard it here first. Don't get involved in Thelema. That's not what I'm saying, <laughs> but it's uh, it's good to keep your wits about you whenever yeah. you're meeting new people. This is true. This is true. Can I? Uh, you, I sort of derailed you. I do want to hear what you think the point of this conversation <laughs> is. Well, see, this is your elaborate scheme to get me to have to explain it where I would have been asking you. <laughs> but uh, this is a catch-up. We're playing uh, um, check-in here. So we've been... So far, we've done five deep dips. I guess technically four different books but uh, or pieces. Uh, but we ended up doing two on Jack Parsons' essay. Um, and, uh, so we're doing a little check-in here. Um, I was glad to have the break in the Parsons because I felt like I just, I needed more than two weeks to figure <laughs> out what was going on. It was kind of nice too. Yeah. We kept it fresh. So we were able to, I, I felt like I was able to come back to it. Um, you know, taking a break from it and coming back to it, it just felt like, okay, it's rejuvenating it. We're instead of just kind of being in the mire of it. So it was kind of nice, yeah, having a little bit of a, a change of pace there. But, uh, but yeah, it was amazing how deep we were able to get into that. And uh, um, I think that's kind of the same with each of these so far. That's one of the discoveries that I've made is, uh, you know, uh, I figured we could talk at length just because it's exciting to talk about this stuff. This is the stuff we're interested in. But the fact that we're able to talk, we're able to get so deep into it um, and not completely dredge everything out is uh, kind of eye-opening. You, you know, no matter what text we're looking at, it seems to be the case. Is there anything uh, that you feel is, like, new for you after doing these uh, close reads together for the last, I guess for us, it's been about two months, but for the world, it will have been closer to six. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's not, I don't think it's the first time either of us have read any of these. It might've been my first time through the Doughty King mm -hmm. um, and really kind of understanding uh, some of what that was about. I think that's the text we treated least fully in mm. our in our episode because it's kind of the, the was our first most, one. At least, and structurally the most cumbersome. Yeah, I mean, it, it was keeps, kind of. I, I think I, I forgot that you had initially suggested we just concentrate on the first fifty pages or something like that. Um, and even that is not sufficient. What would, what needs to be done is to rearrange the chapters by subject and mm -hmm. approach it one subject at a time so that you're not confused by the leaping from topic to topic. And I didn't uh, understand that because it was the first time I'd, I think I'd really read it. Yeah, you know, um, that, that was eye-opening. That text, yeah, in hindsight, I could totally see where there could we could do a whole lot of research to put something really, really in-depth together that was really scholarly and, and all that sort of thing. But, I mean, that's something we didn't – I don't know how we, – we, we kind of graced off of, but uh, we're not scholars and we're not treating this as a – scholarly thing exactly we're treating it as you know to enthusiasts deep diving into the material and um i think your initial idea in suggesting this was 
to demonstrate what can be done by deep diving like this, you know, for everybody. Yeah, for um, a a listener who might, or a reader who might think of themselves as a little bit more casual, uh, someone who's smart uh, and, and cares enough to pursue it, but hasn't been rigorously studied or because I feel like a lot of the secondary source material is from the perspective of someone who really thinks they know something and they're trying to like tell you something about it from an authoritative They're explaining it to you. It's true. Which is what secondary material is supposed to be. But I think um, the the common criticism is that the way the secondary material is handled in Thelema is that it distracts from the text and wallpapers over some of the less pleasant stuff and or some of the more, more difficult stuff and is supposed to like, not supposed to, but has the effect of giving people a way out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought it would be cute to show that you don't really need someone else to get between you and Crowley if you're prepared to do a little bit of work. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've, we've been around this stuff a long time. And I, this is one of the things I want to ask you today, because I don't really know, is that you and I have known each other for 10 years. And that's about as long as I've been doing it. My introduction was those lectures that you and uh, RAM were doing mm-hmm. for a little while back then. But but um you know i'm not in in the 10 years that i've been working with this material i haven't published a book or i haven't uh um you know attained my knc or <laughs> whatever <laughs> other ways people might claim authority so i'm i'm just an intelligent reader who can and and showing what can be done from the perspective of an intelligent reader, how did you get, you know, this is not the high school question of like, Hey, when did you first discover Crowley? But how did you end up uh, taking this seriously? And when did you, when did you first kind of show up around, around Thelema? (laughs) Funny. I was just thinking about that uh, just shortly before, um, before we initiated this discussion, uh, because I was thinking about Lon Milo Duquette, and uh, for some reason I was mulling over something or other, and I was, I was, uh, it occurred to me like, what if somebody was to ask me about uh, my thoughts on Lon Milo Duquette? And uh, I would in- <laughs> inevitably be ambivalent because uh, that's an example of, um, I guess, would you call that a secondary writer or? Uh, um, what was it? is that what we were saying? Secondary. That's who. That's who. who one of the um, uh, one of the people you might point to when you're talking about secondary material. Mm-hmm. He, I think, is trying to be serious secondary material, or at least wants to be thought of that way. But I do. I, I don't know if he really rises to commenting on. Crowley stuff, yeah. Uh, I don't think in that, a meaningful way. I don't. Yeah, I agree with you, and I think that uh, um, he tends to present material, uh, whether whether it's Crowley or other sources and whatnot, and that's really what he's there for is presenting the stuff. Um, it's really quite cute 
um, <laughs> and you know, so a lot of people like that cuteness factor and the the accessibility and and that sort of thing. But uh, the, there's some uh, ritual instruction which people might find helpful. And his Monday night magic class is more than most people ever ever do. You know that he really does. I think still meet once a week at his house and help people get their toes in with Enochian magic and experience a little bit of something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but I, I, I do think that he's, um, he's one of these guys that does more wall building than gate opening mm-hmm. in terms of, in terms of the ability of his readers to understand the material and take it seriously. Yeah, uh, they understand his material. Yeah, but, but they don't become less intimidated to approach Crowley in the original, or or God forbid, any of the people that uh, Crowley was inspired by, who are often even more opaque than he is. I think mm-hmm. Crowley's clarity is what makes him uh, is what recommends him. He's the best English language writer on yoga. Period. Yeah. So, uh, oh, I mean, that's yeah. Of- we can get into a whole discussion on that because uh, I can understand where people would have difficulty with Crowley. Um, I was lucky in that I had already been really big into Charles Dickens and f- familiar with Victorian writing styles and that sort of thing. And and I think if you're a modern reader, um, especially if you're not uh, steeped in other time periods and and writing styles and that sort of thing. Um, that could be problematic. But just to drag it back around, going back to my ambivalence about Lon Milo Duquette, uh, the reason I put it that way is because of the fact that uh, the first book that I that got me into Thelema, and even gave me any indication of Thelema, the word, and, uh, and that sort of thing, was uh, his book, uh, The Magic of Aleister Crowley, which I had stumbled across in a bookstore, and I'd only remembered Alistair Crowley from having heard about him being, you know, in, in one of these, like, uh, books that I think were left over from the 70s that were about, like, UFOs and paranormal things. And then there was this one chapter on Crowley, which was very lurid and, and talking about he was a member of this satanic cult called the Golden Dawn. And, you know, going into all this, uh, he seduced a school teacher and... and killed a cat nine times and going on about all these uh all the uh most lurid aspects of uh this thing that they could play up and and dredge out of the yellow papers from back then and uh so that's my image of Crowley this really mm-hmm. dark kind of in, in interesting uh intriguing sort of thing and uh I think contemporaneous with that I was you know I bought the uh the Necronomicon that you can get in you know indigo chapters <laughs> stores and that sort of thing and is uh, apparently like a just you know um completely made up and everything but at the time it was fascinating to me being young and everything um but later on fast forward 10 years and and I'd stumbled uh, uh that's that's sort of the background that I had was with anything to do with magic was just this really fascinating mysterious world and then when I happened to walk by this Magic of Aleister Crowley book in an Indigo mm-hmm. chapters. Um, they, uh, I, I pulled it off the shelf and was like, it was out of perverse curiosity and, and thinking, eh, I want to fuck with this and see what happens. And um, as I got into it, um, 
it was weird because right off the bat, it's, uh, it was just a lot of Lon Milo Duquette apologizing for Crowley and trying to uh, poke holes in all of the uh, um, gossip and everything like that around him. But then, and which didn't mean anything to me because I didn't know anything about, you know, it was kind of just, okay, all right, all right, calm down. <laughs> Stop apologizing or whatever. But uh, um, when I started getting into actually Crowley's own writing, and it was particularly when I was reading Lieber Semek and his commentary on Lieber Semek, I uh, was kind of floored because I realized, oh my God, this is somebody who's like, all of the uh, philosophies, all the ideas that I had sort of generated on my seemingly on my own, um, it, this was aligned with, um, and I just and it and it gone a lot further. It was like uh, I had sort of realized at some point that I needed a map for the soul, so to speak, to to find my way around. But I was lacking that, and lost in the dark as a result. And I discovered. When I when I was reading Crowley's own writing there, it was like realizing, okay, this is somebody who's actually gone there and had access to maps that I didn't have. Mm -hmm. And that was what was really fascinating about that. So it was like this discovery. So my ambivalence about Lon Milo Duquette is just that it's like, well, it makes it, it was making it accessible. I think now the internet is so much more um, prevalent for that kind of thing, especially since I wasn't much of an internet person even when when there was a lot of the internet going on and all that sort of thing anyway i i don't want to pull this uh thread too too hard you know i don't want it to be just become uh just uh bash any particular pop writer because i think the pop writing is the problem not not any particular who individual. else you got bring it on uh this <laughs> um uh but this thing about the apologizing it, it, is it totally disingenuous? Because Crowley really is many of the things that people are afraid that he is. Mm -hmm. And um, do these people just not know that? They have access to more of the material than we do. Mm -hmm. They must know that he was often a really bad dude. Mm -hmm. And to pretend he wasn't. What the hell is going on? <laughs> why, <is she> <laughs> why, are these, why, why are these people lying to us? Well, I think this is, you know, it's one of those things where we, we always seem to, as human beings, we have what I've been, I think, in these podcasts, I've started to describe as insect mentality of it has to be on one side or the other. And we can't seem to fathom the idea that there's gradients to things uh, and a person can be complicated. You know, right. Um, I don't think Crowley, I think Crowley, you know, um, I think he was a much better person in a lot of ways than people realize. And I think he was a lot worse in some ways than people want to accept. Um, mm -hmm. But I think he was a complicated person. I think he was genuine in his aspirations. Uh, yeah, no, that's correct. He, his, his teaching was sincere and his aspiration, I think, was, was sincere. And, uh, and his attainments, uh, I, it's difficult to evaluate this claim until you're quite deeply in it. So we're just going to have to take our own words for it. But his, uh, his, his attainments, I think, are also true and, and sincere. Mm -hmm. uh, and so 
but I, I was wanted to kind of switch gears a little bit and ask about some of the stuff we've particularly been working on the last couple of months and, and see if it changed anything for you in terms of your practice, your comprehension, your approach, you know, either to living perhaps or to Thelema generally speaking, as I was saying, it's not the first time for either of us looking at these texts, but it may be the um, deepest time. Yeah. Is there anything new happening for you? Well, I, I do want to point out that, yeah, it was a deeper in a different way, certainly. I mean, you go through reading any of these texts and maybe you're making notes and, and trying to dig deeper into it, but it's, it is a different thing when you're, you know, you're going to be discussing it and you want to, you know, really be understanding it uh, and having a um, having it mapped out in your head and that sort of thing. So that really makes a huge difference. And um, I've definitely noticed that um, certain things have been sticking with me. Like, for instance, um, in Liber Libellum, there's a phrase where Crowley says, uh, he, he quotes from the Book of the Law, Thou hast no right but to do thy will, do that, and no other shall say nay. And he, mm-hmm. he, he suggests write it in your brain, um, burn it into your brain and, and uh, keep that with you deeply. And uh, I started doing that. In fact, I made a mantra out of it. I used, a, I used it as a mantra and uh, I will do that sometimes. And that really helps, I find, um, keeping that deeply in the forefront of my mind, thinking of things in that in that terms in those terms and i think it's a similar way to doing resh regularly and saying will before meals and that sort of thing people lose track of their own agency so easily life Mm -hmm. will just take them and carry them and if you're going in the right direction that's the nice thing about life is to be taken and carried in the right direction but um, when external forces start making demands upon your time, it's very easy to forget that you can say no. Mm-hmm. So, uh, <laughs> um, so, or to worry about other people saying no to you rather than just doing things. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you react to the world around you and that sort of thing. And that can take you out of your, you know, your focused place for sure. So, I mean, there's that. My- Go ahead, please. I was going to say, mine is Liber Labellum too. Uh, I read um, Liber B. Vel Magi again uh, fairly recently, which I now understand to be substantially about redemption. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this question of what redemption means in the context of Thelema. People don't like the word. They feel it's sort of too Christian-y. Um, and this may be too dense to, or, or too interpretive to go into right now, but this idea of like a fall of man, where man is removed from nature, sees himself as separate from nature, whether that's because, uh, you know, he's eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or whether that's because um, he, he lives in this world of sense impressions and can't Uh, understand the real material world or whether that's because uh, he's become too technologically sophisticated and is now 
an anti-natural animal who could somehow, you know, destroy the world by his behaviors. But the, but there's, um, there's many different ways of interpreting it. And in Thelema, where one of our duties is to rejoice and to, to kind of recognize where we actually are as splendid and correct and we're not worried about escaping like we, i don't think Thelema really has a nirvana or a heaven or uh or, or or something like this so it's it's difficult to know what redemption would mean in a Thelemic context but crowley's purity doctrine from libra labellum where purity means to accept the whole thing as it actually is, without adding anything extraneous, it become it, it, it really is a, a Vedantic conception of purity, where your your fallen condition is just your misunderstanding of what the world is, and to be put in right relationship to the world uh, mm-hmm. um, is is the is the redemption to have have your understanding corrected. Mm. And this may seem like fairly simple to some people, uh, but once you realize that true will is not free will, that there is a kind of fate and a kind of destiny, it's it's difficult to realize how one to think how one could be wrong if one is living according to a destiny. Like the how how could you be in error if there's only one path? You know, if there's no counterfactuals, no other things you could have done. Mm-hmm. How could how could how could the thing you're doing, which is the only possible thing, how could that possibly be a mistake? But mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it 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 is. There's a in Thelema, there is this. It's a misunderstanding that gets corrected through practice, and I I, I don't think. I knew that before. It might have been something I was able to guess, but to, to mm. be able to read Libra Bivel Magi with a clear understanding of um, of what the text says, only because we've been over these other few, especially the, the thing about purity doctrine and uh, Libra Labellum, mm-hmm. is, is new for me. It gives me a better understanding of, and that's the whole project, right? I mean, the, yeah, um, it's the, the the project of of spiritual work is often thought of the, as the project of redemption. So it helps it's helpful to know what you're being redeemed from. Yeah. Well, you know, I think uh, this is one of the difficulties I find with uh, the Thelemic corpus is that uh, it is easier than we want to admit to cherry pick the things that we want to focus on. Um, even when we claim that's not what we're trying to do. And I'm, I'm not trying to be facetious about somebody else. I'm saying literally us, you know? Um, yeah. And uh, so doing something like this is really cool because it does give us a chance to engage with the material a little bit more closely where, you know, uh, I don't know when the last time I'd read Liber Labellum had been. I did have a really strong opinion or a, a strong regard for it, um, but it it had been a while. So, and it was uh, reengaging with it was, and particularly in this way, really was um, cool. <laughs> Getting that deep mm-hmm. into it and that you know, um, and yeah, being able to compare it and cross reference it with these other materials in the Thelemic Corpus. Um, is really elucidating. 
but because of the vastness of the thelemic cor corpus, it can be hard to um, be able to manage it mentally, you know? Especially, right. you know, if you're just on your own doing your thing, I can imagine, again, where it's it's just easier as a... Um, uh, in practical terms, it's just more practical to to essentially cherry pick and just focus on one or two things at a time, essentially. People should be able to do this kind of accountability on their own, where they read and reread and try their best to understand. If you're genuinely interested in something, uh, and it helps if there's a practice that goes against the reading. You know, if you're interested in, say, combustion engines, uh, and you read a whole bunch about combustion engines, and then you try to build one, it doesn't work. That's evidence that you've missed something in your reading, and you go need to go back and look again. Thelema actually is like this, where there's operations that can succeed or fail, and the success or failure uh, uh, allows you to then reread and correct your misunderstanding mm -hmm. but uh, uh it requires a good deal of self-discipline and maybe people don't have that around their practice somehow uh so you know this is one of the reasons say, that i like doing this as well us talking about these things is because it's another layer. Hope. I mean, this is what I'd I'd love to be able to see coming from these talks. Is uh, it's another layer to add to people's uh, engaging with the material, so that you can you know saturate yourself with it in different ways and get different perspectives on it and that sort of thing. Because there's so much you get out of discussing uh, a piece that you don't necessarily get by yourself. You know? Going into a discussion makes you accountable for the material in a way that reading it for yourself doesn't. You can say, like, I'm going to go back to this later uh, um, and then never do that. But if when you're uh, – this, this is something important. When you're teaching, uh, not thinking of yourself as, as, as hoping the student will – Un understand everything or even like show up <laughs> especially <laughs> in Thelema the students just don't always show up but um, uh, the point of teaching is to is to create a little bit of an accountability engine for yourself so that you can uh, uh, you, you actually have have some responsibility to the material beyond just your idle interest so I don't know for me for you, you're the you're, you know you're this is your podcast. I'm sure you'd love for people to listen. But for me, the point is really uh, is really about um, getting a chance to getting a chance to do the work with someone else and and mm -hmm. get deeper by doing that. Well, that's one of the things that I was thinking about too is the fact that like the the whole idea behind Toronto Thelema is. Um, essentially in service to the community it's it's fostering a community for thelemites and even non-thelemites who are interested in just mm -hmm. occult subjects and that sort of thing um but uh in this case thelema is also a very individual uh field of practice and for some people it's specifically an individual field of practice and they're not so much into the community aspect of it but uh 
Um, and I don't think there's like a right or wrong there. I don't want to make it sound like I'm going to argue for one or the other because I think there's strengths to either one. I think there's strengths to the hermit stage, and I think there's strengths to the lover stage, and I think that there's it's perfectly fine to take one or the other or to oscillate between them. But uh, what have you found in terms of what you would get out of these things from discussing them with another person, not just in terms of accountability, but what you gain from the other person? Um, yeah, I think it's helpful to like if we disagree about something to understand that there's something controversial about that something because i i think mm -hmm. people's blind spots allow them to just have one interpretation mm -hmm. if if i if i read something in a specific way uh even if that that thing is multivalent it may hit me as being absolutely crystal clear Mm -hmm. So, and, and especially because of my peripheral reading and, and other sort of listening that I've done, like I'm, I'm not, I've read a, a, a little bit of the Nietzsche three or four books and uh, some Kant and then uh, a number of other authors on uh, magic. Um, but I also uh, the insp the inspiration for this deep reading idea was a podcast called Partially Examine Life that does lots of um, uh, philosophy material. And so I just have, I'm, I'm aware that I have a lot of things going on that will bias me towards a particular interpretation. Mm -hmm. And some things may just, and, and when I read something, it may just be like, oh, no, that's explicitly this. And that it's uncontroversial. And then some, sometimes, not often, but sometimes, like often I think you uh, agree with me or, or come to some of the same conclusions. But when, when I say something and, and, you're, uh, and, and I'm surprised that you don't agree, that's really neat. That's <laughs> like, um, uh, and I guess the other thing is just uh, that it's kind of fun to get into it you know like mm -hmm. to to feel like you've worked on something well enough that you know it a little bit and you can bring and you can get excited about this passage or that passage or you know read yeah. read beyond the few things that stick out and, and 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 try to try to beat between them more deeply uh it's just it's just nice to be with someone around a piece of text I agree, and I think one of the things that I uh, I, I find fascinating about it is like, uh, like you say, it's uh, like I'll I'll see the text in a certain way, and then when you're, um, I find it fascinating to discover what points you find interesting and important, and I I will probably agree with you in a lot of uh, cases, but I won't necessarily have thought of it in the same way initially, you know? I mean, I mm. would have had my focus in a different spot or or um, chewing on it in a different way. Uh, so that's always interesting. I find that there's a certain amount of uh, the bouncing back and forth between two people that creates a bit of a feedback loop that ends up... Um, getting something a little bit bigger than just the sum of its parts, you know? What did we, um, what did we miss? Is there anything we didn't 
talk about that's sticking in your craw or anything mm-hmm. we got wrong that you want <laughs> you want to clarify or is it not, i mean you've done a lot of editing i was just going to say maybe it's not fresh in your mind but you spent so much time editing these <laughs> that i'm sure they're all fresh in your mind oh yeah well i mean uh it's always sort of uh you know little bits here and there and and things that we could have built on and you know stunning insights that uh i would have loved to have <laughs> you know gotten on tape or whatever but uh nobody uses tape anymore that's too bad yeah <laughs> uh, you know what maybe we should do these things on tape we should no no right. let's not do that and then hand copy them and leave them on the bus for people to find yeah why don't we just get a fucking chunk of rock and a chisel while we're at it <laughs> <laughs> Go right that's back. not that's that intimidates people now they, they, they blew up the georgia guidestones because people don't like when you carve things on rocks anymore <laughs> it really fucks people up <laughs> permanent <laughs> permanence my ass carving shit on rocks. <laughs> i'm blowing this up what, for the buddha 80 years for that thing to be bombed <laughs> uh, um yeah I wish I hadn't been so hard on Jack Parsons for his anti-feminism masquerading as feminism. (laughs) I think he was really sincere in his appeal to, you know, the ladies. Uh, (laughs) That's a borrowed joke. That's for someone specific ladies. I think, um, uh, and uh, the, his weird uh, essentialism thing about, you know, maybe women don't belong in government, but they have this other office that we get established for them over here. I think that is really meaningful. And what you were saying <laughs> about the trans evaluation of values, you know, this thing about how uh, women are not just failed men and like <laughs> like for, for women to be in the workplace is uh, is is a victory. And that women who work are somehow better than women who choose not to work, which I know is not really how the argument is 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 structured. But this, uh, but uh, the, the whole a hundred years of feminism leaning on the fact that women can exemplify male virtues, um, and without realizing that female virtues are also valuable. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that Parsons was get it was was really trying to drive home. that uh, women do have, or not that individual women have, but the feminine ideal is really different than the masculine ideal. And that feminine feminine ideal has equal value. Um, So even though when you read him closely, it looks like he's saying you should exclude women from government, uh, which I think is really what he's saying, uh, but but he's also saying that uh, that it, it, that feminine attributes have have a real value which deserves to be recognized, and I think that's a piece that continues to be missing. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely fumbling around in admiration, you know, mm-hmm. um, as I'm sure we all are. But uh, um, it's not an easy thing to be a guy trying to express you know support for women because the longer you talk about it the more asinine you end up sounding really yeah and not not only support for women but like 
believing that you need something from them for your project to succeed. <laughs> and so, uh, and then to, to convince them that your project is actually the highest value of feminism and the thing they should be paying attention to. <laughs> uh, e even if you're right, like, let's say Jack's right. Even if you're right, that's still going to be a tough sell. And <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 I shouldn't have been so, uh, aggressive with him for trying his best to do something really hard, even if he's wrong, like, <laughs> or trying your best is still cool. <laughs> and <laughs> there were many beautiful passages and many things the paper gets right. So, uh, um, uh, so yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm right to point at the things because there's a, uh, there's a narrative uh, about how, you know, Crowley, was super sexist, but less sexist than the people that came before him. And Parsons was a little bit better and Grant was a little bit better. And now aren't we enlightened? And it's just really not how it works. Yeah. It's really not how, uh, how, how any of it works at all. So I, I think it's good to point out where things that people are, are missing in their idealistic portrayal of progress. Mm -hmm. Um, how, how was your, um, can we do a check-in on your yoga practice? You were doing lots of nice, uh, of, of nice Lieber E stuff when we last talked. Yeah, it was coming uh, along really well. I think the last time we talked, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> th the past two weeks have been not good. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, um, I've been struggling to keep up at it, uh, but it was uh, sort of, uh, physical, um, it's not even like I was sick or something like that, but it was just sort of, uh, the combination of trying to get it in with that, you know, trying to keep up the schedule that I had to maintain while get keeping those things happening, the pranayama and the asana. And, um, uh, also having my body kind of feeling like it needed some downtime and that sort of thing and not really getting the, uh, yeah, just basically struggling with it the same way that I think everybody does from time to time. Um, but it has, yeah, there was a, I, I cut down to a half hour over the past few days in my attempts to keep at it. And uh, I'm not sure if that was a good idea or not, because it does, you had mentioned when we were talking about um, eight lectures on yoga you were talking about the idea of living in hour long periods of time. And if you get used to living in half hour periods and that sort of thing, it becomes, you get, you get habituated to it. And I think there's uh, um, some direct experiential truth that I've been um, witnessing lately <laughs> based on that. So that's something well, I what you, wanna... what you don't want is for your, is to give your mind the opportunity to run a con job. There's mm. something in Crowley's diary that uh, just lingers with me because it's so, it rings so true about the, uh, uh, but it, in the book that is called The Magical Record of the Beast 666, edited by Kenneth Grant, mm -hmm. uh, he talks about how cocaine is useless and it's a bad drug and I don't want to do so much cocaine anymore. So I'm going to lock my cocaine in the medicine cabinet and swear my strongest, most uh, rigorous magical oath that I will not unlock this medicine cabinet for three weeks. 
And then uh, he looks down at the counter and realizes that the cocaine is not in the medicine cabinet. (laughs) (laughs) And so, uh, and uh, it it sounds like an excuse, but when you're actually living in this place, I don't want to pretend I've ever been a drug addict. I haven't, but like it works with anything, diet, exercise, yoga. When you're actually living in this place of trying to, um, pin down a discipline for yourself. Uh, the fact that you didn't, the, the semantic excuse that I don't have to unlet us unlock the medicine cabinet. I can do all the cocaine in the world without breaking my <laughs> magic load really does seem like a material reason, like a, a material <laughs> way out of your problem. And, uh, and, and yeah, he just go, he just c- carries on doing way more cocaine than is healthy. Um, <laughs> Uh, so what you don't want is to give your mind any cards that it can play, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this idea that, that you have, you know, this one thing that you're doing and then, and then your, your negotiating rational mind will try to find ways around it. Yeah. So, uh, so I think cutting back from 60 minutes to 30 minutes is probably better than cutting back from 60 minutes to like 55 minutes because hmm. what happens is that is that it, it it lays down a groove when you when you gack out early from your practice and that groove hangs out for like three weeks mm-hmm. and so you'll be opening your eyes at 55 minutes at 55 and one half minutes at 55 and three quarter minutes um and those last five minutes become a weird kind of hell and your brain will say, Oh, it's only five minutes or I should check and see if someone texted me or is my timer broken? Like maybe my timer's broken. I should just open my eyes and peek. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas, whereas what you're doing to yourself now with cutting it absolutely in half, um, it's going to be really clear the first time you sit down to do an hour again, that one hour is much longer than half an hour. That's true. Uh, and it may happen that after 20 minutes, you think this must have been 40 minutes, and then you'll peek at your timer and go, oh, fuck. <laughs> but if you can just be, if you can just be really, really disciplined, like the first three times, you might paper over that more easily mm-hmm. than if you were giving yourself a shorter break yeah fair enough i mean one of the things that might be useful to listeners uh is part of the uh what i'm talking about with the physical aspect is uh uh the pranayama was becoming quite a strain i had upped it to uh what was that it was basically a full minute i think last Mm -hmm. time i talked to you and uh i did that for you know just a few days or whatever and i was finding it quite a strain and uh, I realized, you know what, uh, as I was reading back over the materials, it's like it emphasizes not to strain. And mm-hmm. um, I realized that was a big part of my uh, uh, reasoning for backing off. I also went back a step. So I went back to the 15 out, 15 in, hold for 15. So yeah. I'm back at that stage as well because I wanted to just make sure that I'm not straining and forcing it um so that was probably a better idea than uh than reducing the amount of time investment going back a step because mm-hmm. you're not comfortable is probably okay i mean also i think somewhere crowley is 
Surly says that uh, he 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 overemphasized this not straining thing, and that some people who struggle for weeks and weeks and weeks might be in a position where if they would just push on to like the next phase, they they would have it, but they're they're over worrying about this thing of perfectly easy before they go on and, and well you know that's their that progress. goes back to what i was saying about that insect mind it's like uh, if you um if you overemphasize the dangers then people are going to be afraid they're going to be very gun shy if you do the opposite and say just for, go hard 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 then they're going to uh you know they may not listen to those signs and things that come up you know so uh, um, that's just one of those tricky things about the way our minds work that we have to – it's like anything else. It's like doing workouts, you know, exercising your body. You have to listen to your body. You, you've got to push it because that's how you make progress. But you also have to be listening to it and know when, you know, there's potential for injury and that sort of thing. And I think for myself right now, I'm still trying to get a feel for what the difference is. Um, in this case, I was th- – kind of worried about the strain aspect of it and i probably yeah should have just bumped down and then stuck to the hour but i think the hour was problematic for other reasons as well so it's just a matter of like you know uh whatever excuses i can come up with right now (laughs) pretty much but well look um you don't have to leave any of this in if you didn't want to i don't feel i don't mind calling you out on tape but I do think it's valuable for people to hear absolutely um, when things are going well and when they're not going well. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and Lord knows it's not it's not useful to just be listening to you know some golden child talking about how they did everything just right and you know didn't have any problems. That's not helpful to anyone, right? There's a guy who I think we might both know who posts on the internet every time he hasn't had a cigarette in twelve hours. <laughs> Every like four times a year, he's like, no cigarettes for 12 hours, no cigarettes for 30 hours, no cigarettes for one week. Uh-huh. And then he'll just stop posting. And then four months later, he'll, uh, <laughs> no he'll, cigarettes he'll do for the 10 same hours. thing again. Yeah. Yeah. But, it, you know, and I thought if you want real accountability, post every time you do smoke. <laughs> that's yeah, what you, that's what you should be doing. Uh, that if you If you want to actually help with this. It's like, oh, fuck, I smoked three cigarettes in a row just before. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, teachers are, living teachers are fallible. And I have a real skepticism about any living person around the Lima. And it's from experience and it's mm-hmm. from reading lots of beginner books. And uh, I, th- I think people are scared and modernity is modernity is not bad but what's going on in modernity is hostile to many of the things in crowley that were the best things about crowley Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that so people who do thelema are just eaten up with bad faith and uh and false false equivalencies and just like i said wallpapering over stuff so you know living teachers are are fallible and they're always fallible. It's not a problem of modernity, really. It's a problem of, of having a person in front of you. But working from a book, uh, especially on a on something like this, where oh no no, you really need to be really really comfortable before you move on in your uh, breathing practice. You don't want to like 
like overstrain yourself, you know, I mean, who, you know, breathing once a minute is hard. You should practice before you start breathing once a minute, Mm -hmm. whereas someone else might baby themselves and different advice for different people. You can't do different advice for different people when you're writing an essay. You just have to pick one piece of advice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and so it's it's very very difficult to um, to work from a book without mm. a living teacher. Yeah. But then, of course, the living teacher, uh, if the living teacher goes easy on you, and you know, rather than giving you what you actually need, that's not helpful either. So, mm. what's your favorite text? Of the four we've read so far, I guess. Probably Liber Labellum, frankly. I mean, I've really Mm -hmm. enjoyed uh, that and the Jack Parsons one um, because the Jack Parsons one was just a joy to, you know, delve into, especially, and to discuss and that sort of thing because I feel like it was uh, slightly, I want to say unexpected. I don't know if that's the right right term Mm -hmm. for it, but you know what I mean? It was just a... Um, it was a lot of it fun. Is not, it is not what I thought it was going to be. Um, and then after the first five pages, when I decided what it was, and it turned heel on me, it turned into something else. <laughs> that was a nice surprise, too. And, um, you know, that's another one of those things that's carried I've carried with me uh, since then is that's always kind of in the back of my head, like his uh, definitions of freedom and the way that he's talking about freedom. And... Uh, I don't think it was far from the mark, frankly, in a lot of ways. It's such a um, a common way out for people when they say, uh, you know, uh, no, no man is free until every man is free or something like this. It's a way of excusing a lack of commitment to freedom. To say, oh, you know, I recognize that you're free, but that means you have responsibilities. And, uh, and then it gives you a way of just telling people what they should be doing, being incredibly prescriptive, mm. uh, um, and, and especially prescriptive around, um, uh, around issues of, of altruism. It's a, it's a way of, for, it's a rhetorical move that allows people to go back to Christian morality very, very quickly. That's true. And so I was super scared that, <laughs> that that's what that that's what was going to happen. And, uh, you know, when he calls it liberalism, that's something that, that in, in the modern world points to something kind of pretty unhealthy. But his definition of liberalism really is, really is quite, pretty thalemic and uh, and pretty mm-hmm. good and i don't think it you know the responsibility of that of carrying the two-edged sword that's the responsibility of the wielder it's not a it's not a responsibility of uh of, of anyone the wielder wants to bully into yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know the 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 wielder recognizes his own freedom and also the freedom of other people to be hostile to freedom, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas um, uh, it, you, only, uh, you only have the responsibility of, of 
working towards the liberation of all mankind if you pick up the sword on purpose by yourself. Uh, so, so this idea that like other free people sh- need to be altruistic because of this rhetorical move, it's, it's thankfully not what he does. It's, uh, it's on us who are Thelemites to defend freedom, not to bully other people into, mm-hmm. uh, having, having false ideas about it or correct or even correct ideas about it let people have false <laughs> ideas about it yeah allow message. people to have ideas about it basically yeah uh what was your favorite text i think i think probably um the parsons um because it was the most challenging and the most surprisingly beautiful like i know that crowley can write so to but when parsons was so able to con to construct a few beautiful poetic phrases that was really nice and inspiring mm-hmm. and uh and uh, and, it, and it was the most fun to struggle with to go like what what the hell are you doing here i don't know this is not a real move and then to find out that it was but that it was a structural problem that was making me miss it or my own interpretive, the power of my own interpretive consciousness that was making Mm -hmm. me miss it. It was the most rewarding because the fruit was the most hard one, I think. Mm. I had read that paper uh, a few years back. So this was your first time reading it as well. So it was something that I threw at you out of left field, I think, but uh, yeah, thank God. (laughs) Getting getting to read new stuff is just the greatest. Yeah, maybe I, I hope we uh, you know we're both able to make discoveries like that can, going forward as well with these uh, discussions. But uh, we are, because we already kind of hit on this um, beginner book thing a little bit and made all the standard gripes. <laughs> uh, what what are your favorite? You this is something a question you wanted to be asked at some point. So what's your favorite uh, recommendation for new people, both a Crowley book and maybe a, a secondary book as well? Well, anything Lon Milo Duquette is doing, I think, is pro- – no, I'm kidding. <laughs> 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 Just wanted to make you angry. Um, I read about five of those when I was starting out too. So like mm-hmm. the idea that he's um, – that he he prevents people from being able to understand the text with his writing because he's he's apologizing and, and uh, for things. I mean that 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 of Crowley would never apologize for. <laughs> uh, I mean maybe that's valid, but also everyone ends up reading him at some point, and you and I both went deeper than him. So in, at least in this immediate case, it's sort of a false. Uh, criticism to say, oh, once you read Lawn, you never read anything else. We both did. <laughs> he functioned in the way he that's thinks true, he's supposed yeah. to function with us. Yeah, that's true. Um, I would say, as a beginner, just read Crowley's words. That's the most important thing. Um, it's easy enough to get all kinds of recommendations, and I mean, you can get the standard sort of, uh, you know, read magic and theory and practice, read magic without tears, Um but I would just say read Crowley's own writing. And if you can, read it first. And if it's hard, er, you know, everything worth doing is hard. 
and just spend some time with it. Let it sink in. Don't worry about, you know, getting it right away. Uh, and if you, if it's not that hard, I find with Crowley, um, you know, he was capable of writing with different layers because he was speaking to, uh, like with all this vast knowledge of things, um, and he was just bringing it up constantly so that, uh, for people who are coming into, uh, the subject matter who aren't steeped in it already, it can be a little overwhelming and that's all. So what all that really means is that you can keep coming back to it and getting more out of it and being able to, you know, um, delve deeper into it and that sort of thing. And it can continue to grow with you. But I think the most important thing is if you just read Crowley's own um, writing, hey, read read uh, his commentary to Lieber Samek. It's not that long, and it's really insightful in terms of the way he's describing the uh, um, the invocation of the Bornless One um, and breaking down the whole idea of like wind, uh, air, water, fire, and earth, and and and. Uh, on dry land and in the water, and he's describing these these concepts uh, in terms of uh, in terms of psychology and in terms of uh, spirituality. Uh, I found it very lucid and very uh, eye opening. But you know, most people wouldn't suggest Lieber Samek as a beginner piece or anything like that. Right, but you know, you uh, if you come up with uh, against a word you don't understand. Uh, look it up and then uh, and, mm. and follow the references in the footnotes. I don't know if, how, how heavily footnoted Lieber Samick is, but in many of his books, he recommends others of his own works. Mm-hmm. And there are ways on the internet to do that very easily. Um, uh, I want to put in um, a, a plug. I, I read, oh, you know, hell, I don't remember what the heck it's called. Um, but the author is, uh, uh, I'll say Auntie Bulk. Uh, let me just Google it here super fast. Yeah, we live in the future. I got, I've been looking at this book the last two days. A N T T I B A L K. So I'm going to say Auntie Bulk. Uh, if I, if I'm getting that wrong. It's a $50 paperback called The Law of Thelema, Alistair Crowley's Philosophy of True Will. The nice thing about it is um, that he writes very little. It's almost all quotations, um, but they're little essays glued together from quotations, sometimes quite clear and sometimes a little bit more difficult. Um, but there'll be an essay on Thelemic morality, an essay on ontology, an essay on, uh, um, uh, the one I'm reading right now is on prophecy and, and it's a, a monumental, uh, achievement. There's bits pulled from say a dozen or so of Crowley's more, uh, prominent writing stuff from the confessions stuff from, uh, the new comments, stuff from the Temple of Solomon the King, uh, all organized together in these essays on subjects. So if a person wants to know what the Thelemic position on X or Y topic is, 
they can look it up and read 12 pages of just Crowley quotes about that one subject with very minimal um, uh, original material inserted by the author just to make the, 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 the piece flow as an essay. Um, and, uh, and I think for the intelligent reader who, you know, knows what the word ontolo uh, ontology means or, or is capable uh, of or, looking uh, it up <laughs> or is capable of looking it up. Thank you. Uh, it, it might be a good place to start because it's, it gives something, uh, coherent on some of the main subjects that you might be curious about when you're that's approaching great. a religion and it's uh, the I, the difficulty of it is also something to recommend it and of course then you follow the footnotes and you see magic and theory and practice magic without tears the new comment uh and you go like oh this is a th these are the books that i should read mm -hmm. so uh for a first thelema book if we're going to go secondary sources one that's mostly primary sources. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. I mean, the problem with secondary sources is that uh, the writers themselves don't realize how they're coloring the work. So much less do the, the readers, especially when they're new to the material. Uh, when you read something like that and you're well steeped in the material, it's a little easier. But, you know... When the writer doesn't themselves have like a, an agenda to deliver it in a particular way, they're unconsciously delivering it in a particular way. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that carries a lot with it. So it's always better to go back to the original material. And I mean, there's all kinds of Thelemites out there. There's all, you know, people who downplay Crowley and go just to the Book of the Law. There's people who um are just completely about crowley there's people who are anything in between but i would say we need crowley's work because it's uh it's giving us the most direct in to what thelema is and what it's all about and i think it's always most important to go back to to crowley itself his his own actual writing um, so I really like that as a recommendation, what you just gave there. It sounds like a, that's, that would be really handy having something that's dealing with the cross referencing and whatnot, which is a little bit more difficult from the outset when you don't know where, where to get your bearing or anything like that. I also want to put in a plug for the whole history of Western philosophy. <laughs> um, because when you start reading, uh, Crowley, if you don't know anything about sort of, European ideas and the history of of, of ideas in in, in Europe. Uh, at least for me, uh, certain things struck me as as unique that were not unique. There's a whole there's a whole history of of there's a whole tradition of philosophy dealing with the will, what we, willing is, how willing works. Uh, you know, we go back to. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, and then back from Nietzsche to Spinoza, and and deeper than that. And there's a whole uh, history of philosophy dealing with um, dealing with the master-slave relationship. Crowley, in his introduction to the Book of the Law, says the Book of the Law introduces a new dichotomy, that of masters and slaves. But Hegel talked a lot about masters and slaves. Nietzsche talked a lot about slave morality. And the slave revolt that leads to um, 
Christian altruism being thought of as the highest value. Um, So these things that one is tempted to say Crowley's pretending that they're unique, but he isn't. He assumes you've read this stuff Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, he assumes you've read it so hard. It's not on any of his reading lists. Uh, Nietzsche was fairly new, I think in English translation and every smart person was already reading it. So the, the idea that he would have to recommend it to someone, it would be like me recommending you watch game of Thrones. <laughs> not that every smart person is watching game of Thrones, but it's just the most popular thing going. So, I've not uh, seen that, incidentally. So, <laughs> there yeah, you have. good for you. It's a, too many hours, too long. Don't do it now. Yeah, I do not recommend you watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> and you know what? Uh, I'd, I'd say like uh, it's also handy to be able to go back and look at uh, medieval to modern magic that predates the Golden Dawn. But uh, that's a little bit outside of the beginner range. But it, it is kind of good to get. A little bit of grounding in that kind of stuff because that's what the golden dawn was informed by and crowley was mainly informed by the golden dawn one has to realize that they they must ever ex- ever expand their reach mm-hmm. you have a you have a duty to oh this is embarrassing <laughs> uh but I, let's say colloquially a duty to just keep getting bigger expand yeah. ever the domain of your consciousness mm-hmm. uh, um so uh yeah pick so, up a science uh, it's not a pick up a physical activity <laughs> it's not a question that stops yeah exactly uh now real quick it feels like we're wrapping up here so uh um i would like to say hopefully we get a chance to continue doing these uh um you know far off into the future so that we can continue to expand you know perpetually Mm -hmm. and uh it's been an absolute pleasure so far and uh, i know that people will not be hearing this for several months to come so this is we've only had uh we have the third actually as a matter of fact we have the third episode of the podcast going up this evening um at midnight tonight shortly um so we haven't been getting feedback from anyone or anything like that, so it should be kind of interesting to see if if we actually do get any kind of feedback by that point. In <laughs> yeah, where we are in six months when other people hear this. Yeah. It's been great. So, yeah, I'm uh, starting school on Tuesday because arts work is for losers. So <laughs> I'm giving up arts work uh, uh, because <laughs> arts work is not work. <laughs> uh, Just like Dad I used get- to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you can't get paid for it, it's not real. Uh, so I'm going back to school on Tuesday and, and uh, going to be sinking a lot of my time uh, into a reading that isn't magic, uh, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, I'll maybe learn, I'll learn some Latin. I'll know all the names, all the nerds and stuff by the time we next speak. Nice. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I do hope to, um, I, I do hope we can keep. Uh, we can keep on this track because as I said I think it's I think it's very useful for me and that's all I care about selfishness <laughs> is the highest moral principle and, uh, and people should be more selfish so but then but so selfishly thank you for giving me the opportunity uh, to uh, to uh, to have these conversations with you and thank you oh gentle listener for joining us here in the darkly splendid abodes 
<laughs> Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Darren. 93. Have a good one. 93. This concludes our first season in the Darkly Splendid Abodes. Look for Toronto Thelema on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Watch for episodes of Season 2 on the first and third Fridays every month. 